This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is far below the dignity of the President of the United States to take any notice of Talleyrand's impertinent regrets and insinuations of superfluities. You or the envoys or Mr. Murray may answer them as you please, in your correspondence with one another or with the French minister. I will say to you, however, that I consider this letter as the most authentic intelligence yet received in America of the successes of the coalition. That the design is insidious and hostile at heart, I will not say. Time will tell the truth. Meantime, I dread no longer their diplomatic skill. I have seen it and felt it and been the victim of it these 21 years. But the charm is dissolved. Their magic is at an end in America. Still, they shall find, as long as I am in office, candor, integrity, and, as far as there can be any confidence or safety, a pacific and friendly disposition. If the spirit of exterminating vengeance ever arises, it shall be conjured up by them, not me. In this spirit, I shall pursue the negotiation, and I expect the cooperation of the heads of departments. French Foreign Secretary Talleyrand had written a letter to President Adams on 23 Florial in the French Republican calendar, or May 13th in the Gregorian calendar. It took until July before it was received in Philadelphia. Secretary of State Pickering then examined it before sending it on to Adams on July 31st. Adams would not receive the letter until late in the evening, five days later, and responded to Pickering on August 6th. For all of the candor and integrity that Adams expressed in his reply to Pickering, the fact that it took over two months for a message to travel from France to the U.S. Capitol, then nearly a week to reach the president, shows the difficulties of trying to conduct foreign policy in the late 18th century, even under the best of circumstances and the president being nearly a week away from the most up-to-date intelligence was not the best of circumstances. This is where we find ourselves, dear listener, as I welcome you to this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Thanks so much to David Montgomery of the Siecla podcast for reading this episode's intro quote. What is the Siecla, you may ask? Well, en français, Un siècle is a century, and that is exactly what David is covering in his podcast. His podcast looks at French history starting in 1814 with the original fall of Napoleon to 1914, the beginning of World War I. It is a part of French history that is often overshadowed by the Napoleonic era and the great wars which bookend it. But David plans to shed light on this fascinating time in l'histoire française. I'll include a link on my social media as well as the source notes page for this episode. Or you can go to thesiecle.com. That's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E, no space between, dot com. By the time he sat down to put pen to paper to respond to Pickering, President Adams had been away from the national capital for nearly five months. Adams had received a note from an associate in late April urging him to return to Philadelphia. But Adams had responded that, quote, I do administer it i.e. the government, here at Quincy, as really as I could do at Philadelphia. 
The Secretaries of State, Treasury, War, Navy, and the Attorney General transmit me daily by the post all the business of consequence, and nothing is done without my advice and direction when I'm here more than when I'm in the same city with them. Ah, but if only that were true. As we'll soon see, it has been argued by many historians over the years that some of his cabinet members used Adams's absence from Philadelphia in order to exert influence to delay his designs, in particular, the peace mission to France. The first delay in this mission, however, would come from one of the intended envoys. On April 16th, Patrick Henry of Virginia would write to President Adams declining his appointment, citing his, quote, advanced age and increasing debility. Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth, the head of the commission, would learn of Henry's decision before Adams, and, with the two having already contemplated the possibility that Henry would decline, and having discussed Adams's preferred alternate candidates, took the liberty of reaching out to North Carolina Governor William R. Davey, a moderate Federalist. Adams directed Pickering to make out a commission for Governor Davey. Surprisingly, given his track record, Pickering actually did follow the order and made out the commission. More true to form, however, Pickering also wrote to Adams on May 15th that he felt Davies should be instructed not to accept immediately, as that would require him to resign as governor of North Carolina, and, after all, we didn't really know if the commission would ever be sent at all, did we? Why wouldn't it be sent, you ask, dear listener? Well, one of the conditions in the agreement brokered with the High Federalist dictated that the two commissioners still in the U.S. would hold off on proceeding to France until word was received that the French government would first receive William Vans Murray, the third commissioner already on the ground in Europe. Nothing easy is ever simple, is it, dear listener? Pickering at this point was counting on distance being his friend in delaying the beginning of the negotiations with the French. With Adams and Quincy, Murray in The Hague, Davy in North Carolina, the French government in Paris, the U.S. government in Philadelphia, and U.S. and French vessels around the Caribbean. There was so much that could go wrong and derail the whole enterprise. Meanwhile, General Alexander Hamilton continued to push for the mobilization of his army, er, I mean the new army, and he persisted in blaming Secretary of War James McHenry for the delays. Since the secretary couldn't be trusted to sort it out himself, Hamilton traveled to Philadelphia in the spring and spent a few days developing a plan for dealing with various issues, including provisioning and desertion. However, when McHenry passed the plan along to Adams, the president insisted that congressional approval would be needed for it. So it went on the shelf until the end of the year. As pointed out by McHenry biographer Karen Robbins, there were multiple issues facing the new army. Besides the intentional delays caused by the president and the cooling support in Congress, as discussed previously, mobilizing such a large force was a new endeavor for the United States. Everyone, including Hamilton, was still trying to figure out to whom in the organizational structure as it stood to send particular requests. Even when the request could be routed to the correct person or office, the fact of the matter remained that the nation did not have a well-developed industrial infrastructure from which to obtain supplies. McHenry had spent a good amount of time in 1798 working to have iron foundries established in order to produce muskets and balls, but the National Armory at Harper's Ferry was still being constructed in 1799 and would not be fully operational until 1801. The delays meant that, as of the end of summer 1799, 
only around 2,000 men were enlisted in the army that was already authorized to recruit over 10,000, and that Hamilton had been pushing to be expanded even further into, quote, a force of 53,000 regulars, plus dragoons, and a volunteer corps. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the side of peace, news actually reached Murray in the Hague of the appointment of the commission rather quickly, just under two months after the fact. A couple of weeks later, on May 4th, Murray would receive his official instructions from the State Department and would waste no time in writing to French Foreign Minister Talleyrand the next day and assuring him that, quote, It is with the greatest pleasure that I hasten to fulfill the instructions which I have just had the honor to receive. Murray informed Talleyrand that his fellow commissioners would not embark, quote, until they shall have received from the executive directory direct and unequivocal assurances that the envoys shall be received in character to an audience of the directory and that they shall enjoy all the prerogatives attached to that character by the law of nations and that a minister or minister of equal powers shall be appointed and commissioned to treat with them. Given what had happened with the first Peace Commission, it is understandable why there was such specific language used in an attempt to cover every loophole that the crafty Talleyrand might use against them. Unfortunately for Murray and the proponents of peace, his letter would be headed to a Paris yet again on the edge of uncertainty. Though the year 1799 had started out with French forces under General Jean-Étienne Championnet marching into Naples and proclaiming a new sister republic slash French satellite buffer state, the Parthenopean Republic, the victory would be short-lived. The kingdom of Naples, which Championnet had attacked, was allied with the Russian Empire, and the Russians were none too pleased about the aggression towards their allies. Thus, Russian forces requested and received permission from the Habsburg monarchy to march troops across Austria to attack the French in Italy. Even before the French arrived in Naples, the Directory government was already demanding the withdrawal of the Russians back to their territory. The Habsburgs were not thrilled as it was at having been forced into peace by Napoleon's army threatening Vienna a couple of years prior, and now the upstart French were trying to tell them whose army could be in their own territory. By March, the Habsburg monarchy joined the Second Coalition and declared war on the French. By that point, Championnet had already been removed from command and recalled to Paris to be the scapegoat of the Directory for this disastrous turn, as the Russians arrived in Lombardy and the King of Naples and Sicily, Ferdinando, had landed in Calabria and assembled an army of 17,000. Meanwhile, French General Jean-Baptiste Jourdan would suffer a massive attack at the Battle of Stokache on March 25th, which would leave the French forces in Central Europe retreating before advancing Austrian and Russian forces. These setbacks would in turn threaten the Directory's hold on power back in France, for it was election time again in the spring of 1799, and despite an abysmal voter turnout, those who did turn out were hoping to turn out the Directory, as only a third of the Directory's endorsed candidates were chosen to join the Council of Ancients and Council of 500, the legislative bodies of France. 
Meanwhile, as was the case each year, one of the five directors was chosen to be replaced. And in the place of the reliable Jean-Francois Rubel, the man chosen to succeed him was the longtime critic of the Constitution of 1795, Emmanuel Joseph Sias. Sias had actually been chosen to be one of the original directors, but as he was critical of the form of government, he had declined the appointment at that time. In 1799, though, C.S. saw an opportunity and accepted the post. What happened after C.S. joined the directory was an absolute mess. The Council of 500 summoned the directors to explain why the armies of France were now in retreat and accused their administration of the affairs of the nation to be corrupt and damaging to the nation's prospects. When the directors could offer no answer, the Council of 500, as well as the Council of Ancients, decided to remain in permanent session until some answers were forthcoming. Then, they turned their sights on one director in particular, Jean-Baptiste Troyal, accusing him of illegally assuming his seat the year prior. Troyal quickly resigned on June 17th, and a left-leaning bureaucrat was chosen to replace him. At this point, the ever-opportunistic director, Paul Barat, seeing the way the wind was blowing, changed his allegiance to C.S. and the new director, forcing the other two directors to resign on June 18th after they were accused of organizing the coup of Florial the year prior. The purge of the three directors has come to be known as the coup of Prairial, named after the month in the French Republican calendar in which it occurred. The coup would prompt another shakeup in the executive ministries, and just as he had been swept into office two years prior, Talleyrand was forced out as French foreign minister. Thus, as the American government was beginning its new peace initiative, the political situation in France was anything but peaceful. Let's leave the French Republic here for the moment and head back across the Atlantic. But know that you shouldn't forget the name Talleyrand just yet, and there may just be another coup in France before the year is out. With that delightful bit of foreshadowing, let's move on. As the spring progressed closer to summer in the United States, more news came from the Caribbean. An American sloop, the USS Ganges, had been confronted by the British frigate HMS Surprise, with the British demanding the, quote, surrender of all the Englishmen on board the Ganges and to see the protections or credentials of the American seamen. As we learned in episode 2.13, after the incident with the USS Baltimore the year prior, President Adams had sent orders to all American naval commanders that insults like this at sea were to, quote, be resisted to the last extremity. Thus, Captain Thomas Tingey of the Ganges replied to the British that, quote, a public ship carries no protection but her flag. I do not expect to succeed in a contest with you, but I will die at my quarters before a man will be taken from the ship. The surprise was quite surprised by this response, and, rather than force the issue, decided to leave well enough alone and broke off without any further action. Just like their president, Americans on the high seas were tired of being pushed around. So what was Adams doing during this time at Peacefield? According to historian John Furling, in addition to handling his correspondence with the government in Philadelphia, he was also supervising, quote, work at the farm and overseeing the construction of a cider house and the completion of a new barn. His predecessor Washington would have appreciated that from all the correspondence we have of Washington trying to tend to personal matters at Mount Vernon from afar during his tenure of office. Adams was also taking the opportunity to visit with family. His son Thomas had been there upon his arrival in March, but had left a few days later for first Maryland, then Philadelphia. Nabby came to visit as well, and would be there the majority of the period of John's time home. 
though there were concerns of a relapse of bad health for Abigail during a spout of hot weather in Maine, she made a quick recovery. During the spring and summer, Adams would at times venture out to make public appearances, including attending, quote, a meeting of the Artillery Company of Boston, in which John was, quote, dressed in full military uniform, as well as, quote, participating in a ship launching ceremony in Boston Harbor and, quote, commencement exercises at Harvard. He was determined to show that he could still carry out his public duties while residing in Quincy. On June 23rd, he issued an official proclamation lifting the U.S. embargo on trade with Saint-Domingue. He was able to coordinate this with Secretary of the Treasury Walcott so that, on the same day, Walcott issued new regulations to collectors of customs at U.S. ports in which U.S. ships were permitted, quote, to bring cannon, guns, powder, and provisions to Toussaint Louverture, but not to his rival for control in Saint-Domingue, André Rigaud. Adams would point to all of this as evidence of his ability to retain a hand on the reins of power from afar. Despite the distance, though, it does not seem that Adams truly rested and recovered from the strains of his office. As described during this time by Furling, quote, His appetite disappeared. He lost weight. He feared that his life was ebbing away under the strain. In two years, he fretted he would not be alive. In his sour, atrabilious mood, he launched prosecutions against two authors who had published attacks on his administration. At times, he was so irascible that Abigail thought it unwise even to permit him to see state documents. It would not just be his family or political enemies who would experience his backlash. Washington's former Secretary of War and a friend of Adams's for many years, Henry Knox, would call on the president joined by two others. And rather than showing any sort of appreciation for these well-wishers, Adams, quote, refused to engage in conversation reading the newspaper instead, while they stared uncomfortably at one another. Furling attributes John's foul mood to the realization that his presidency was likely over, but I'm not sure that I would go that far. Knowing how Adams processed information and possibilities, I wouldn't be surprised if the thought crossed his mind, but I think he was still likely more focused on how to prepare for whatever news should come from across the Atlantic, rather than spending too much time considering the presidential election that was still over a year away. In the heat of the summer, word would come to the shores of America of the coup of Prairie All. When General Hamilton heard of Prairie All, he started to see a glimmer of hope for his army and his prospects. On top of the issues with recruiting and readying the new army, Hamilton was also facing some personal money problems. With the news of the latest coup from France, Hamilton and other arch-federalists felt that surely the French government couldn't be long from falling. And... With that fall would go any hopes of diplomacy that Adams had. No peace meant its opposite was more likely, and it might just be the motivation needed to get this new army going. Adams, however, did not see the news of the coup of Prairial in quite the same light. Due to the arrival of dispatches from Murray and then the letter from Talleyrand, Adams was feeling more confident than ever that peace was finally within his grasp. Thus, he wrote to Secretary of State Pickering that Talleyrand's letter had contained the assurances that he needed, even with the note of impertinence as noted in our opening quote. As such, Adams directed Pickering to go ahead and send to Ellsworth and Davy the go-ahead to start making, quote, immediate preparations for embarking, whether together or asunder, from a northern, a southern, or a middle port, I leave to them. He was even willing to send naval officers with them, whatever it took. But it was time for them to get to France while the getting was good. Unfortunately, for the third year in a row, a yellow fever epidemic struck Philadelphia. 
I'm only going to touch briefly on the 1799 epidemic, as it is ultimately not as severe as the one the year prior. Even though one life lost is too many, only around 1,000 people would succumb to the illness in 1799 versus over 3,500 the year prior. In what had become an annual tradition, the federal government would move its offices and functions to Trenton, New Jersey. But before we follow them there, I should mention that this is the last of the yellow fever epidemics to hit Philadelphia for a couple of years at least. Rather than the fear that it seemed to inspire in prior years, in 1799, prominent residents of the city, including Dr. Benjamin Rush, were looking for moral lessons from the tragedy, with Rush feeling, quote, that controversy and disease, however painful at the time, had become indispensable to the further development of American culture and virtue. Indeed, in the study of medicine, the epidemics have provided a first-hand opportunity to extensively study the disease in order to understand its symptoms, how to treat it, and how doctors and public officials might seek a way to prevent and eradicate the scourge of yellow fever for good. Within the next few years, some medical experts will begin postulating that atmospheric conditions in the city might be responsible for the spread of the disease and would call for measures including covering open drains, cleaning out privies regularly, moving burials beyond the limits of the city, and the planting of public gardens between buildings. Out of these annual tragedies, medical science was making advancements. As stated, the new outbreak would force the federal government to flee to Trenton. Now, I've tried to find details about this particular move, but as with a number of specifics in the Adams presidency, they are somewhat elusive. In a letter to Adams of August 23rd, Pickering still notes his location as Philadelphia. The U.S. State Department's website, which has information about the department's move to the New Jersey State House in Trenton, notes that the department was located there, quote, from about August 29th to about November 1st. Adams's instructions to go ahead and make preparations for the envoy's departure seems to have arrived by the 23rd, though there is no acknowledgement of the receipt of that particular letter. Pickering does note on the 23rd that, quote, the draught of instructions preparing agreeable to your directions for the envoys to the French Republic will be ready in two or three days to submit to the consideration of the heads of department. However, in the same letter, Pickering also informs the president that, quote, Yesterday, the alarm of the yellow fever increased so much that many of the inhabitants are removing, and some of the public offices are preparing to leave the city. By the 29th, only six days later, the State Department would be in Trenton. Now, as we noted in episode 2.11, the process of moving entire executive departments from Philadelphia to Trenton was not easy. As this has not been noted by any of the historians that I've read to date about this time period, I thought it important to include in order to give Pickering a little slack. It's very rare that I've found an instance in which to do so. Gotta take the moment while I can. By September 9th, Pickering wrote to Adams from Trenton that, quote, I'm revising the draught of instructions for the envoys to France and making the alterations which have been agreed on. I expect to transmit them to you by tomorrow's mail. In what seems to be an uncharacteristic move for Pickering, the second in this episode, I might add, he actually did what he promised with little fuss. Well, until the next day, that is. Though pointing out that he had submitted to Adams' instructions, he first introduced the possibility of Ellsworth having an opportunity to weigh in on the draft of his official instructions and, should any of his suggestions be agreed upon by all the cabinet, the directions should be edited accordingly. 
Also, Pickering pointed out the news of new instability in the French government and suggested that the mission be suspended in order, quote, to place the United States in a more commanding situation and enable the president to give such a turn to the mission as the impending changes should, in his opinion, demand. He informed Adams that the entire cabinet felt the possibility of a suspension, quote, to merit serious consideration. The traditional telling of this is that Pickering was engaged in a delaying tactic to try to prevent the diplomatic mission from moving forward. While I do think some of that was going on, as it had been for the majority of Pickering's tenure in the Adams administration, there are a couple of other points that I think it only fair to take into consideration before passing judgment on Pickering. First, the entire government just moved 29 or so miles in a time before steam-powered locomotives or ships or internal combustion engines. What's now a 41-minute drive, according to Google Maps, was much longer in those days, especially when you're carrying all the documents of the federal government with you. Second, the president was a few states away and had been for months. As much as Pickering was a snake in the grass who would ignore instructions from Adams without blinking, Adams had made it much harder to put Pickering in his place and get things moving along by removing himself from the federal capital. It was with that in mind that Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddart wrote to Adams on September 13th urging him to, quote, join the officers here before the departure of the mission to France, or if it should be suspended, that you would not give the order for the suspension before your arrival here. Stoddard did not just make the request, but provided a justified argument for the necessity of Adams' presence. He noted the difficulty, though asserted the possibility, of maintaining peace with both France and Great Britain. But Stoddard pointed out that his belief in this being an option was a minority opinion, both in the cabinet and in regular circles. He remarked upon the distress that was already being expressed by the British of the thought of the U.S. sending peace commissioners to France, but insisted that, quote, we have a right to make peace with France without asking the permission of England, and we are not to submit to unreasonable and unjust constructions of the treaty for fear of her, i.e. Britain's, resentment. Stoddart was in essence declaring himself to be of Adams's opinion that there was a middle ground on which to be walked in order to not be subject to either of the two European powers, but rather to be friends with both. This was the same line that Washington had walked for so long in his tenure of office, a stance that many at the time and since would credit as making Washington's presidency a successful one. However, with the opportunity for peace, there came dangers in the path. Though he would attempt to soften the blow, Stoddart was not afraid to call one of the dangers out by name. Quote, Colonel Pickering is certainly too much occupied with the business of his department to find time to understand this subject as well as our commissioners and the attorney general must do. And it has therefore appeared to me that the best course would be to call these gentlemen at least the Attorney General, to the seat of government to prepare the representation which should afterwards be pruned by the heads of department of everything like acrimony and of any argument, if any such found admittance, calculated to confute rather than to convince. Basically, Stoddart was saying that organizing this mission couldn't be left in the hands of Secretary of State Pickering. Instead, the commissioners needed to come to Trenton or Philadelphia if they were back there by that point and confer with the cabinet members. Read all of the cabinet members on their mission. 
Stoddart made a point of calling for Attorney General Charles Lee to be summoned for this consultation since, as we've seen in previous episodes, Lee has proven to be closer to Adams' line of thinking and more in favor of peace with France than Pickering, Walcott, or McHenry. Stoddart needed some backup in this, and while Lee would be a great help, he didn't stop there. Adams himself needed to be there in order to ensure that everything went smoothly and that the commissioners were sent off to France with directions that made it clear that they were to seek an honorable peace. Adams himself was needed to steer the ship through the treacherous waters ahead. As Stoddart wrote, quote, I think the peace of the country may depend upon taking the true ground now and upon promptly carrying into effect the proper measures to prevent a misunderstanding where it is so much our interest to be understood. Okay, so I'm going to pause for a minute here and do a little analysis. Strap yourselves in and have those grains of salt ready. The traditional interpretation of this point in the Adams presidency is that Stoddard's appeal prompted Adams to make plans to head to Trenton. However, historian Stephen Kurtz disagreed and instead argued that Adams being away from the Capitol for so long was part of a well-crafted strategy to delay the peace mission that he himself had initiated. Why on earth, you ask, would Adams delay the peace mission? In Kurtz's interpretation, Adams felt that the delay would give enough time for the three squadrons of the U.S. naval fleet in the Caribbean to assemble and thus give the U.S. added strength in negotiations. To Kurtz's credit, there is a good amount of precedent in Adams' career to date that does suggest that this played into Adams' decision-making. Early on in his career during the Revolution, Adams had argued for the importance of naval strength in securing American independence and sovereignty. It was clear that naval strength was the Achilles' heel in French military might at that time, and by the time of the Murray nomination in February 1799, it was clear there was little likelihood that a French army would be ferried across the Atlantic anytime soon. Adams was unwilling to form an alliance with the British and rely on them to protect American commerce on the high seas, as that would reconstitute a dependent relationship that he had worked during his lengthy career to overcome. While the letter from Stoddart to Adams of September 11th has been noted in almost every study of the Adams presidency, To date, I've not seen anyone quote Stoddart's letter to Adams of September 3rd. In this letter, Stoddart reports on the latest news received on the location of various naval captains and their ships making their way around and to the Caribbean. The letter is short, but concludes with the following lines. Quote, When they are joined by Captain Talbot, which will be about the 10th of October, our force will certainly be sufficient to protect that trade. I wish it may turn out to be worth the cost. This letter conveyed to the president a clear message. The naval force was coming into place. The time to act was now. When I first read Kurtz's article, it helped to fit all of the pieces into place. Like Kurtz, I have a hard time believing the traditional view of there being a deliberate, organized plot by Pickering and the Arch-Federalists to delay the mission, and that Adams was completely ignorant of the fact that Pickering and the Arch-Federalists were hoping and actively working in their respective capacities to delay the mission. Hear me out. The political parties in 1799 were not as we think of political parties nowadays. They just did not have the centralized organization that modern parties have. Even within the three cabinet members who have been traditionally described as being in the pro-Hamilton Arch-Federalist camp, Pickering, Walcott, and McHenry, 
we've already seen that their relationship with Federalist ideology and with the magnetic poles of the party, Adams and Hamilton, is much more complicated than a broad generalization will truly accommodate. Do I think each of them wanted to work against the peace mission? Yes. Do I think they really organized that resistance? No. However, to counter Kurtz, I do not believe that all of Adams' decisions in 1799, the initial appointment of Murray, the subsequent appointment of the commission, including Patrick Henry, and his departure for home in March to remain and chill the fall, was part of some grand realpolitik delaying tactic. My interpretation of the events to date in this year is as follows. Adams held his cards close to his chest prior to the appointment of Murray in February because he knew the move would be opposed, but genuinely thought it to be the right move. Then, when he faced such harsh criticism of the appointment from both his own party and the opposition, he gave in yet again to the arch-federalist demands to appoint the commission on his own terms, mind you. He'd be damned if he'd take their suggestion to appoint Hamilton. Even with choosing his own nominees, though, there was a sting to yet again compromising. By March, Adams was hurt, tired, and feeling very lonely in Philadelphia. His partner in life was hundreds of miles away. He got to the point where emotional need overcame logic, which of course has never happened to any of us before, ever, right? And Adams hit the road to Quincy. Once there, He settled into what had been his pattern the previous year of governing from afar and using the opportunity away to really sort things through and get back to more of a position of strength from which he could challenge the forces arrayed against him. Like Kurtz, I don't get that there was a sense of urgency for him prior to August for the commissioners to be on their way. But whereas Kurtz pins the pivotal moment in September with Stoddart reporting that the naval fleet in the Caribbean was in position, I would argue that Adams anticipated that news. To Kurtz's own point, Adams's correspondence with Stoddart was much more frequent and detailed on matters of naval operations than his parallel correspondence with Pickering on foreign affairs. Adams had served as a de facto Secretary of the Army and the Navy during the Revolution, after all. He was well-versed in those matters, but also to Kurtz's point, he was also much better versed in European diplomacy than Pickering. He understood the ebbs and flows of the business of both departments, but required more detailed feedback from Stoddart about plans for the Navy, as Stoddart was his only source of information on that subject. In the field of foreign policy, he was receiving frequent on-the-ground reports from Europe from his son John Quincy as well as William Vans Murray that were much more beneficial than anything Pickering could provide. Armed with the information he needed, by August 1799, Adams was back in full command and ready to leave. Stoddart's letter likely solidified an idea that Adams already had in mind. It was time to go to Trenton. In the early morning of Monday, September 30th, 1799, President John Adams, with his private secretary Billy Shaw, set out from Quincy, bound for Trenton, New Jersey. Though he had told his cabinet of his intentions to meet them there sometime between October 10th and 15th, it seems that the public in general was unaware of his intentions. Former Senator George Cabot wrote to U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King on October 6th that, quote, Last Monday, the president set off for Trenton. His departure was unexpected and was scarcely known until he had performed half his journey. When he arrived in Trenton, Adams would have to face off against some of the staunchest critics of the peace mission to France, and the fate of two nations hung in the balance. 
Either Adams would be able to firmly claim his mantle as president, or he would pass it off to another. We'll see what happens next time in an episode I'd like to call Some Awful Crisis. Until then, I'd like to thank David of the Sierra Club podcast again for providing this episode's intro quote. If you haven't checked it out yet, please look for the Siecla on my social media or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Speaking of, links to David's podcast as well as source notes for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I'm also accessible on social media on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, all one word. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.